Our text is Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. The title of our message, Apocalypse Now and Then. Jesus is going to predict the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem. Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, when will these things be, and what sign will there be that these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is drawn near, therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your own souls. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for these words, words that Jesus spoke in the first century and has been speaking into the hearts of believers every century since. We want to understand them in their context and in the context of our life so that an application can be made so that we can know what you are saying to us today in the very same way that you spoke to your disciples some 2,000 years ago. We thank you that you promise that the word of God that we've read is alive and powerful. We believe that it is. We've experienced that it is. We know that you always want to do more than we've asked for, more than we could even think to ask for. And so we wait upon you and uh, wonder, Lord, what you're going to do today. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. You've just been chosen for extreme home makeover. Ty Pennington wakes you up with his megaphone blaring outside your door. The producers whisk you away to a mini vacation while the teams begin work on the project. In just a few short hours, they deconstruct and reconstruct an amazing house with all the personal touches that make you the envy of the neighborhood. You arrive by limo and they take you on a tour, showing you all the amenities that give your dream home that wow factor. After seeing the features and faucets, Ty looks at you and says, Gene, what do you think? And you answer, Ty, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Those are the episodes they don't show you. Those are the outtakes. That's why not too many Christians are having their homes made over on that show. 
But I dare you to say something like that the next time a friend or family member is showing you their new house or their new car or their truck or their boat or whatever it is. The Jews were quite proud of the first century temple in Jerusalem. It was a beautiful and magnificent structure. Herod had given it an extreme makeover. Jesus took a look at it and told them it was about to be destroyed stone by stone. It started an incredible conversation that looks beyond our own time to the future. We want to listen in on that conversation. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, looking forward to the future tribulation. And number two, learning patience in your present tribulations. First of all, in verses 5 through 11, looking forward to the future tribulation. You have to help me out here for a minute. Knock, knock. Armageddon. Armageddon out of here. You know, people throw around that word Armageddon. Uh, it, it comes from the biblical teaching that in the last days, just as Jesus is about to return, there'll be a battle going on in the valley of Megiddo, hence Armageddon. I, I went home to pick up Pam in between services and Fox News is on in the background and they're talking about, um, I, I guess President Bush maybe has nominated now a second Supreme Court individual and the Democrats are saying it's going to be an Armageddon on the Hill. And I'm thinking, man, what are you talking about? They, you throw people, oh, it's the apocalypse, oh, it's Armageddon. Hey, man, if you're at Armageddon, you're in bad trouble. I mean, it's not a political thing at all. You're going to die. And so, anyway, I thought that was appropriate. Anyway, you'll, now see, you, you laughed and you groaned, but you'll tell that tomorrow. You'll say that. You'll say. Now, let's look at verse 12. Now that I'm done with that, I got that out of my system. The opening words in verse 12 are, but before all these things. And so Jesus is evidently talking about both the future and what was about to happen in the present. The things Jesus mentions in verses 12 through 19 are tribulations, plural, that occur during the lifetimes of his hearers. The things he mentions in verses 5 through 11 look forward to the great tribulation, which is an event that occurs in the future beyond our own day and age. Both the Old and New Testaments predict a final awful period of time that is coming upon the earth. It is commonly called the tribulation or the great tribulation. Technically, the last three and a half years of that seven year period are the great tribulation. It will last seven years, as I just said, and you get the best description of it in the revelation of Jesus Christ. The last book of the Bible, chapter six through 19. Nothing could be further from the minds of his disciples than a time of terrible trouble upon the earth. They expected Jesus to establish the kingdom of God on earth, perhaps with the temple as his headquarters or at least a monument to that kingdom. I mean, after all, here was Jesus openly now proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, received by the people as he came into Jerusalem as the Messiah. He had been raising the dead, healing the sick. The Gospel of John tells us he did so many things like that, that all the books in the world, if, if you wrote books about him, the world could not contain all the books that would be written. And so kingdom fever was high. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, hey guys, 
The temple's going to be destroyed pretty quick here. Verse 5, then some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, probably thinking that it was ready for Jesus. And he said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, teacher, when will these things be and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? Now, as I suggested, the disciples are taken by surprise. They are not expecting this. This goes against everything they've been taught, everything that they've lived for their entire life. And especially as an oppressed people, even more so looking for the coming of the Messiah. Now here he was in their midst. And then Jesus seems to indicate that things aren't going to go as planned. We are often taken by surprise in our walk with the Lord. It seems the thing least expected happens. We're not ready for it, and we usually want an explanation from the Lord. These are the why prayers. Lord, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Now, what I've learned over the years in my life and the lives of others is that God has prepared you for that day and for that time and for that moment. She said we don't always recognize it because we don't know what's going to happen, so we don't understand the preparation. But it, it, in a very real sense, sometimes just, you know, in, in, I'll be listening to the radio and I'll keep hearing the same thing over and over again. The same area of scripture, the same general teaching, the same principle. And then maybe a day later, a week later, a month later, I'll find myself in a situation that is really being described by what I had been being prepared for. And it takes us by surprise because we're, we're just not using all of our brain, really. Uh, you know, it, it, I'm not getting down on us. But I mean, I'm using less of my brain than I ever have, as a matter of fact. I'm down to like 1%, I think. You should see me driving now. I'm a definite hazard. But anyway, stay out of the way. But uh, we are prepared. God does work hard to prepare us. And so we ought to just expect that we've been prepared and look back and say, "Okay, Lord, what is it that you've already shown me about the situation that I'm in? Oftentimes people be going through a trouble or a trial and, and a good question to ask them. And one thing to explore, has the Lord been giving you any particular scripture? Do you have a story from the word of God? Anything impressed upon your heart? Has anybody shared anything with you? Have you been hearing the same thing over and over? Almost always, if they think about it, well, you know, actually, yeah, you know, everywhere I go to the radio, this message or this scripture keeps coming at me. And they won't make a connection. But then when you read it and think about what they're going through, it's perfect. God gives you the blessing of being able to share with them. Hey, I think God is speaking to you. And then it all comes together. You know, once God has spoken to you, everything just seems to make so much sense. Your trouble may not change. But you have that sense that you want to have as a Christian that the Lord will not leave you or forsake you, that he's with you in your time of trouble. And so the disciples were troubled. They didn't know what to expect now. And they asked the Lord and the Lord begins to answer them, tells them that the temple would be destroyed. Now, this happened only a few years later when the Romans sacked Jerusalem around 70 A.D. The Romans fulfilled Jesus words to the letter. As the story goes, Fire raged through the temple and its beautiful gold ornamentation began to melt. And the soldiers literally tore it apart stone by stone to get at the gold. So if I'm a Jew expecting the kingdom and the temple is destroyed, 
will the Lord establish his kingdom or not? In other words, when will this kingdom come that is prophesied and predicted all over the Old Testament and as the hope of Israel? And so he said in verse 8, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. The destruction of the temple is history. Most of these other things have occurred and are still occurring in our history. There have been and there are spiritual deceptions, many false messiahs. There have been and there are local and even global disputes, wars and commotions, nations rising against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. There are and continue to be or have been and continue to be natural disasters. Jesus mentioned earthquakes, famines, pestilences. We would pencil in hurricanes and other such things. But when Jesus said there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven, he established that he was looking beyond those things far into the future to this great tribulation that immediately precedes his second coming to the earth. You know, great or fearful sights and great signs. That's not Haley's comment. It's not the Jupiter effect. A few years ago, evangelicals were all excited because all of the planets were going to be in alignment. It was supposed to cause cataclysmic events on the earth. And so we knew that the rapture was imminent. I woke up. I forgot the morning of the Jupiter effect. Otherwise, I would have, you know, been all over it. But nothing happened that day. And no one ever talks about that anymore. That's not what is, uh, Jesus is mentioning. Sights and signs from heaven are those amazing atmospheric disturbances that take place in the book of Revelation in chapters 6 through 19. They are supernatural as God is judging the earth during especially the last half of the tribulation. So much so that there's portions where men are actually hiding in the caves of the earth not wanting the sky to fall on them. It's, it's terrible. And, and so that is future. So here's what I think is happening. Jesus is looking down the corridor of history, if you want to call it that. And he says, look, in a little while, this temple is going to be destroyed. That happened in history. And then throughout history, you're going to have cycles repeating themselves, spiritual deception, global dis, uh, disputes, and uh, disasters like crazy. But there's going to come a time at the very end, and you can read about it all over you know, the Old and New Testaments, a special time, a specific time, a time of great tribulation. And then, then I will come back after that, and then I will restore, or not restore, but establish the kingdom. Now, it's becoming more popular to suggest that much of what we read in prophecy, and especially in the book of Revelation, was really already fulfilled in the first century with the destruction of the temple and the persecutions under Caesar Nero. That's why I'm spending a little bit of time on this, because you're going to sooner or later run into a Christian friend of yours who is going to tell you that what we believe about the literal uh, 
unfolding of prophecy is not really true, that it all already took place in the first century. They call themselves preterists or preterists. It's the preterist position from a Latin word that means past or it already took place. What they're saying to you is that revelation is not in your future. It's already been fulfilled. And we're telling you that that's not true. Jesus accurately predicted the first century destruction of the temple. He looked down through history and saw regular cycles of deception, disputes and disaster. But it isn't until after there are fearful sights and great signs from heaven that Jesus will return to earth a second time to finish what he started. It isn't until after a literal seven year great tribulation on our planet. There will be times of relative peace and prosperity in human history. There will be pockets of spirituality on the planet. But things will keep getting worse and worse. They're not going to be getting better, generally speaking. There's been a great deal of debate about Hurricane Katrina and how it was handled or, depending on your perspective, how it was mishandled by certain authorities. One of the issues is whether or not people received sufficient warning and when they received it. We should be warning people about this coming firestorm of God's judgment upon the planet. I mean, it's a very simple thought. Those of us who believe that this time is yet future but coming, well, we need to warn people. The same way you would warn somebody if you knew that a hurricane was going to come right through their town. The Lord has entrusted us with information about the future that impacts every person on earth. We just need to be about our daily spiritual business. Well, how do I warn people? Well, I think it starts with looking within in the sense of where am I really at in my walk with the Lord? Do I need a personal revival? Do I need a renewal? Because everything really flows from my walk with the Lord. If I love the Lord and I'm enjoying his presence, things will start happening around me. Jesus in the book of Revelation would write to the church at Ephesus. A wonderful church. Any church would like to be the church at Ephesus in certain points. He talked about how they were doctrinally pure. They were recognizing false teachers and kicking them out. They had tons of programs. Hey, they didn't have 40 days of purpose. They had 365 days of purpose. I mean, they were on it. They were a right on church. If Jesus hadn't added something, it would be the model for all churches. But he did add something. He said, but nevertheless... I have this against you. You have left your first love. And so that tells us a lot of things. One of the things it tells us that it's possible to be a really right on church doing everything correctly. On the surface, at least. But to have left. A love relationship with Jesus Christ, not lost. You're you're, you're still a Christian, but you're going, as they used to say, through the motions Without the emotion, the motive, the foundation for everything that you want to be doing is gone because you're not really in love with the Lord. And so we want to keep falling in love with him over and over and over and over again. It's one of the early Christian songs that I learned. I love that song. Remember how many remember that song? And that's what we need to do. Falling in love with the Lord over and over and over again. He never falls out of love with us. His love, he says in scripture, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you. It is us that gets distracted, sometimes with good things, sometimes with not so good things. 
And we want to take constant inventory of our life so that we can know that we love the Lord more than any person, more than any place, more than any possession, more than any position, more than anything that begins with the letter P. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a rebuke. It's a wonderful thing. And when we fall in love with the Lord on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis, He will begin to do more and more things in and through our life. And we will find ourselves about the work of ministering to other people. Now, don't confuse the great tribulation that is coming with everyday troubles and trials and tribulations that occur in the life of a Christian. Jesus turned his attention to preparing his followers for their daily tribulations. And he says in verse 12 through 19, learn patience in your present tribulations. Prophecy is a phenomenal topic in God's word. Prophecy was the particular vehicle that God used to bring the gospel into my life. As I sat there and watched a movie, The Late Great Planet Earth. And God said at that moment in my life, I said, Gene, I want you to understand that I've told you what's going to happen in the future. And it's happening right before your very eyes. What are you going to do about it? It blew my mind. And so very important topic in God's word. But it should impact everyday living. We don't study prophecy in an intellectual way just to appease our curiosity or to know what's going to happen in the future. What's going to happen in the future has a profound effect on how we live every day. And so Jesus said in verse 12, before these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons. You're going to be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Jesus knew that after he returned to heaven to await his second coming at the end of the great tribulation, that believers were going to be persecuted. This is what is generally in store for the church throughout history as we wait for Jesus to come back. It's a great one verse summary of a large portion of the book of Acts. This verse summarizes what takes place in that book. And it's really a great summary of the entire church age. You and I may not be experiencing this. But historically, Believers have been treated this way throughout the centuries and are being treated this way in many countries of the world. He says in verse 13, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Now, Jesus just described some pretty severe persecution. He called it an occasion. And the sense of it is it's a special occasion. We celebrated Mary's birthday last night. It was a special occasion. Jesus says, yeah, like that. You're going to be persecuted like, woohoo. Maybe that'll be our song in eternity. Woohoo. Woo-hoo. You know, it's, it's a special occasion in your life. You could also translate the word as opportunity. Your tribulations as a believer are special occasions that give you the opportunities to show others and to share with others about God's grace and mercy in your life. And so next time somebody asks you what's going on and you're in a difficult place, say, I, I, I'm celebrating a special occasion. What? I just found out I have a terrible illness. I just, you fill in the blank. Well, what's so special about that? Jesus is there with me. And it's an opportunity for me to show you the difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian as I just let him fill my life with the wonder of his love. Verse 14, Therefore settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand, 
on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Now you have to keep this statement in its context. If you are persecuted for Jesus' sake, you don't need to prepare a defense beforehand. You don't need to be thinking now about what you might say if you're arrested for the gospel. The Lord promises you that he's going to empower you in that moment. And you're going to speak with such wisdom that your adversaries won't know what to say in response. Now, this doesn't mean that you are always to be totally spontaneous as a Christian. If you're involved in some ministry or area of service, then you should be preparing for it. A lot of times Christians get this confused. We sometimes believe that spontaneity is spiritual. And so a lot of times people will, I've been criticized many, many times over the years because I have notes and I like to teach from notes and, and I like to know what I'm going to say. Because if you're really spiritual, you just depend upon the Holy Spirit. Now I've, I make a, I love God's word and the study of God's word. I love to listen to God's word being taught, but I also make a study of people teaching God's word. In terms of mannerisms and just where they, I, I just not in a critical way, but just to observe. And one thing I've noticed about people who are really into spontaneity, they don't really say much. They have one or two things that they concentrate on and the rest of it is theatrical. There's a lot of hankies. There's a lot of sweating. There's a lot of moving around the stage. See, I can do this. I just prefer not to. And there's that. And, and it, it's to me, it is a little bit comical because I'm I'm I want to hear what is the Lord really saying? And it's just repeated over and over again. And then the audience is like, amen, hallelujah, glory to God. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Preach it, brother. Say it, brother, you know, and, and there's really very little content. It's, it's just kind of a frenzied excitement. I'm not even always against that. I mean, you know, but but there's nothing to be preferred about spontaneity. The best thing to do is to be prepared and then let God speak through you in a spontaneous way as he leads you in a particular area. And so don't don't mistake these words. There's also a very comforting principle here. Seems to me that God is saying that he will give you the grace you need when you need it. And sometimes I look at people and what they're going through, serious, terrible, terminal things. And I think to myself, I couldn't go through that. I don't know how they're doing it. I just, I don't have the strength. And the truth is, because I'm not going through it, I don't have the strength. I don't need the strength to go through it. If God brought something like that into my life, I would find that his grace was now sufficient for me. See, grace isn't a reservoir that we hold on to. It's not something we store, something God gives to us as it's needed. And so the marvel is when somebody's going through a trial or a trouble and you see the grace of God in them, that that God has promised that he will do the same for you, that he will give you grace sufficient for your need. Verse 16, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Now, some of you have felt the pain of rejection. From family and friends. Jesus is talking about more than rejection here. He called it a betrayal. And he indicated that in their case. They would be turned over to the authorities. For imprisonment. And martyrdom. 
But let's just talk about ourselves for a while. Some of us really are clinging too much to family or to friends. There are times in your life that require you to take a stand for the Lord and against family and friends. Some of you have done that. Some of you are facing that. There's just something that comes up and and your family is against it. You you want to do it for the Lord. You don't want to compromise. And there's that tension between family and Jesus Christ. And, And on the surface, it's like, oh, that's no decision. You always choose for Jesus. But it's always a lot more intricate and difficult than that. It's always a lot more subtle. We're blessed that, again, at least for now, no one is putting us to death for our stand. But taking a stand for Jesus will kill or seriously wound some of your relationships. It has to at some point. Because you're living in a kingdom of light and these other people are living in a kingdom of darkness. And whenever you turn the light on, when it's been pitch black for any length of time, it hurts. People scurry away from that source of light they're not used to it and so you know some people they don't really have much of a relationship with family this is no big thing to them but a lot of us in in certain cultures or certain ethnic groups man family is everything when you become a christian oh especially if you're in a family that thinks that they're christians Because they go to some church or follow some religion. Then you say, no, I'm a Christian. Oh, man. Now it's on. And it's a serious thing. Verse 17, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. You'd think people would be happy for you when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Before I was a Christian, I was working as a salesman down at a title insurance company. I knocked off at about 3 o'clock, started drinking beer throwing darts figured I'd work pretty hard that day I worked at least until noon and then I had lunch with a client and now it was three o'clock and I'm you know if I could get my hands on some pot I'd smoke that on the way home kind of come down from being drunk you know every restaurant I went in I'd pick up several receipts they used to keep extra receipts in a jar Why? For people like me who would cheat on their expense account. So I just have all kinds of money flowing in on my expense account. What's funny about that is that everybody was doing that. That was the lifestyle. Driving around drunk all the time. Just, I may have killed people. I don't even know. I I mean, it sounds funny, but I don't know. Uh, there, There could be a wake of accidents behind me. I mean, I drove blind drunk from Orange County to San Bernardino more than once. Don't remember how I even got home. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And it could be that I ran people over. I don't know. Or ran them off the road or caused accidents. And, and so that was my life. So then I become a Christian. I don't drink. I don't smoke pot. I'm honest about my expense account. My life is in order. They call me into the office. They say, what are you doing? I said, well, I become a Christian. They go, well, this doesn't look good. Everybody else is drinking and smoking pot and and lying on their expense account. Your expense account used to be like a, you know, $500 a month. Now it's 20. Uh, Yeah. Pad it. So I really can't, you know, it was crazy. You think people would be happy for you that you got your life together, but they're not. They're genuinely disappointed and they disapprove. 
Here's a great sermon title, How to Be Hated. Because Jesus says, come to me and you'll be hated by everyone. You don't hear that too often as a positive thing. In our era of self-love and self-esteem, nobody wants to be hated. But Jesus says, you're going to be hated by all for my name's sake. Your love for Jesus should be so exclusive and so passionate that anyone who is not a believer becomes jealous of you, seeing that you have something that they lack. Really, your love for Jesus Christ should be so passionate that whatever anybody else is into, they know that you are more into Jesus than that. Even if it's your husband or your wife. Because only when you're right with God is everything else right underneath it. Ultimately, your conversion to Jesus engages you in a spiritual warfare. See, this is the thing we need to remind ourselves of. Why do people act so weird? Why would they rather me be a drunken pothead lying on my expense account? Not for any reasonable reason, but because there's a spiritual warfare going on. There's a darkness, as I mentioned, that people live in. And it doesn't like the light. It, light exposes that. And so I'm engaged in a spiritual warfare with spiritual forces. And I need to meet that with spiritual weapons. A lot of times Christians, they want to quit their job. They want to quit their marriage. They want to quit their school. They just want to quit because the environment seems so oppressive. <laughs> yeah, of course it's oppressive. You're light walking into darkness. They're trying to mug you every chance they get. And it should be like that everywhere. The thing that amazes me is that we don't have more trouble as Christians. Now, I, I'm the same way. I want to avoid trouble. I want to get into a different situation. But I have to remind myself, oh, no, my weapons are not carnal. They're not natural. doesn't mean I can't ever change jobs or schools or churches or things like that. But I, that's not my first lie defense. My first defense is prayer and fasting Seeking the Lord and seeing what effect that I can have on that place of business, on that neighborhood, on that school. Because this is exactly what I should expect. I'm doing a guerrilla warfare in my area, trying to affect people for Jesus Christ. Verse 18, not a hair of your head shall be lost. Does this mean that believers are guaranteed a full head of hair? Preach it, brother. Does it mean that Christians can beat hair loss? No rugs, plugs, or drugs? I had a boss one time. Poor, I love this guy. He's a neat guy. But uh, he, he was one of the first ones that had plugs, hair plugs. And it just didn't take. For a while, I, I know we don't have time, but I'll tell you this anyway. Uh, for a while, he went around looking like he had had brain surgery. He had this cap on and stuff. And, and, uh, and then afterwards, he had what effectively looked like doll hair. You know how dolls have those little patches of hair? It just didn't work. I couldn't help it. I had to look up all the time, you know. In another place, Jesus said that the hairs of your head were all numbered. Now, I'd like to point out that that doesn't mean God knows the total number of hairs you have. Each individual hair throughout your lifetime had a number and God keeps an inventory of it. And it becomes a metaphor for how much God cares for you and watches over you. 
Now, some of you are more sensitive than others about hair, but even the most sensitive probably don't count the hairs in your brush. Oh, some of you do. I'm sorry, but (laughs) quit doing that. But I mean, you know, you regularly lose hair. I mean, you're losing hair all the time. You're losing hair sitting here. And, and, and you don't count it. You don't even count it. And, and if you did count it, you wouldn't label it unless you're down to that last one, you know. But <laughs> but this says that God is so interested in you that something you don't even think about. In, in one very big sense, the loss of a hair here and there. God says that was number ten thousand and five. Put it up here with the rest of them. And and. and that if he cares that much about your hair, which I think hair is weird anyway. I like to have it, but I think it's weird. I mean, it's, is it dead or is it alive? What is hair? Anyway, you ever look at hair under the microscope? There's nothing in it. It's just empty, but it grows somehow. It's weird. Anyway, God cares so much about that. How much more he cares about the big issues of your life. And ultimately, what Jesus is saying is that you will not and you cannot be lost for eternity. Because God is watching over you if you're a Christian. Verse 19, by your patience, possess your souls. Now, we're all familiar with the term demon possessed. The idea is that some other force, a demon is in control of your faculties. On a less radical level, we sometimes talk about a person being possessed by a dream or a desire, something that consumes them. And we'll say, hey, that man, they were just possessed by that idea. The idea here is that you possess your own soul. No matter the situation or the circumstances, you can be consumed by God's peace and joy, realizing that he is in control of the things that affect you. People ought to look at you and I, especially in our daily trials and say, man, Gene is possessed by patience. Imagine someone asking you how you can be so hopeful or so cheerful despite your troubles and you say, I'm possessed. That's really the idea that there's just something. I mean, if you saw somebody over the years, people have said, oh, I think this person's demon possessed or this person's demon. People are just acting 99% of the time. I'll give you a little teaching here. 99% of the time, people that you think are demon possessed are on medication of some kind or they need to be on medication of some kind. I'm, and I, I know it sounds funny, but that's the truth. They, they, uh, they've blown their minds out on illegal drugs or on legal drugs. They just don't process information properly anymore. And we think that they're, we suggest that they're demon possessed. And, and really, they're not. They just are having physical problems. Other times people have said, yeah, this person's demon possessed. Well, what'd you do about it? Oh, nothing. Oh, yeah, just like Jesus. Hey, how you doing with that demon today? I mean, that's a serious thing to say somebody's demon possessed. You better do something about it. You better pray about it. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But, uh, you know, some people, I mean, there are cases of demon possession. And you think, oh, that person is demon possessed. I mean, it's very obvious. It should be obvious that you're possessed by patience in that same way, in a radical way. Have you ever thought about that? That you're just so, hey, how you doing? What's the matter? You just found out you had cancer. Yeah. Praise the Lord. What's the matter with you? You're like possessed by patience. Yeah, I love it. That's the idea. Now, technically, you'd say to them, 
I possess my own soul. Which I, that's a great meditation, isn't it? What a great series of words. How do you do that? By your patience, you possess your own soul. The word means cheerful and hopeful endurance. I can endure my circumstances, even if it's unto death, because my life is in God's hands. The worst that can happen to me brings out the best God can do through me. I can be hopeful as I endure because I know Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. My hope is that I will be with Jesus Christ. I may die physically and then to be absent from the body, I'll be present with the Lord immediately. Or the Bible says that the Lord may come for the church and catch it home to heaven while I'm still alive. Either one of those is a tremendous hope. Man, if I die, wake up and there's the Lord welcoming me into eternity. Or I might not die. I might be caught home. So I'm hopeful. And therefore I can be cheerful. I can have the right attitude because the Lord has overcome the world and all things really are working together for my good and for his glory. And so the more I meditate upon these things, the more that patience can possess my soul and others will see that I'm patience possessed. Now, if you're a Christian, the disciples here were excited about their earthly temple. Jesus told them it was about to be destroyed. Is he some kind of cosmic killjoy? Do you just go around saying, oh, yeah, that's going to burn. That's going to burn. That's nothing. Well, no, because he always offered something more. In another place, and you know this, you're familiar with it. Jesus said, in my father's house are what? Many mansions. If your Bible says dwelling places, scratch that out because the word really means mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and do that, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. Hey, I don't care what kind of, I mean, I like cars. I don't like to work on them, but I like cars. There's, you know, I probably have a dream car. In fact, I know what it is. But anyway, I won't tell you because I know you'd want to get it for me and. You guys really can't afford that Ford GT. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway. But you know, when I get to heaven, we're not going to have cars. I think we're going to be like Jesus who just appeared and disappeared. Better than beaming up. I mean, I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know if it's super fast or another dimension, but I won't need any real form of transportation. And, and as far as houses, man, you could build the most magnificent house possible on the earth and it would be like an outhouse compared to what jesus is preparing for you just in the entry of your home in heaven and so why get all excited about that enjoy it sure but concentrate on using the things that god allows you to have to bring him glory to serve him so that you'll be rewarded in eternity if you're not a christian the word before is an important word if you're not saved Before Jesus comes in his second coming, before the beginning of the seven year great tribulation, there is this event I've mentioned already, the rapture of the church. It's very simple. The Bible promises that Jesus is going to return in the clouds, in the heavens, in the atmosphere, and all those who have died in Christ, all the believers of the church age are going to be resurrected from the dead. And immediately after that, All living believers are going to be changed instantaneously 
and be caught up to heaven to be with the Lord. That's what's going to happen. If you are not ready before that rapture, then you're going to be left behind for a time of hell on earth and probably for eternity in hell. Because it's been well said, if you can't live for Jesus now, you won't die for him in the tribulation when it will cost you your life to be a Christian. And so a lot of people, they think, well, I'm going to wait. I'll always have another chance. There are whole religions that invent second and third chances after death. Hey, listen, I wish it was true. How I wish I could find a place like purgatory in the scriptures. I mean it. I would love to be able to teach that there is a purgatory that you could suffer for a year or a thousand or a hundred thousand years, whatever it would take, and then be cleansed and be able to go to heaven. But the Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die and after this judgment. This is the only chance that people have to solve the riddle of where they will spend eternity. And, and, man, it's easy now. If you can't do something when it's easy, you won't be able to do it when it's hard. If you can't say no to your friends and family now, how are you going to say yes to Jesus then and have them cut your head off? It's just not going to happen for most people. Before that takes place, get right with the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for these things. Powerful things, Lord. A, a look to the future, the actual future, the real future that's going to unfold. We see a lot of it fulfilled. Temple destroyed, wars and rumors of war, disaster after disaster, coming in ever frequent, uh, ever more accelerating cycles. Lord, that is nothing compared to great signs and fearful sights in heaven, to the tribulation that's coming. And so I pray, Lord, for those of us who know Jesus, who've been saved, that we would have a sense of urgency. And before we just plow, plow forward into some field, Lord, of, of service, that we'd spend some time with you and get right with you and make sure that we haven't left our first love. That's where we want to begin today, Lord. Falling in love with you over and over and over again. And Lord, I do pray for anyone here that's not a believer. If they don't know you as their Lord and Savior, that the person that they came to church with or a person that they know or after the service, Lord, when our guys are up front, they would express a desire to meet Jesus Christ through prayer. That they would give their lives over to the Lord. That you would cause them to be born from above, born spiritually, born again to eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, please. What a joy to be with you. I understand that those of you who came Wednesday night, Gene told you to ask me about Space Mountain. It's just going to be a secret between me and... No, I'll tell you about it if you ask. But uh, look, it's, it's a joy to be together. Uh, uh, it's a wonder to have the Word of God. God is speaking to us. Do you sense that He's speaking to you when, when the Word of God is read? It just it's, it's the most amazing thing. And as we've gone through the scripture, I pray that the Holy Spirit has taken His Word and made it real to you, given you a sense of the wonder of His love, how He has drawn you and continues to draw you. And that rather than feeling rebuked or reproved, 
you would just want to get alone with Jesus Christ and express your love for him. And maybe we do need to return to a place of first love, of real on-fire passionate love. There's nothing more certain than our love can wane for the Lord. It shouldn't, but it does. But he's always there, never changing, unchangeable with his indescribable love. Go to him, talk to him, watch your life unfold. May God bless and keep you. Our guys will be here. Come and pray with them. Amen.